Turn, if you would, to Ruth chapter 1 in your Bible. Good to be back with you after being gone for a couple of weeks. My family was able to take some time to see my wife's brother in New Jersey. First time we've been out there as a family, and uh, it was good to see them. See a number of folks yesterday at the wedding as well. It's good to be back in Chicago Falls. Good to see your faces as well. And uh, looking forward to being in the Word together with you. Asked you to turn to the book of Ruth a number of years ago. We looked at this book and focused on the namesake of the book, Ruth. And today I would like to look at another character in the book who certainly is critical to the story. In fact, the story begins with her family, and that is Naomi. Naomi, whose name means pleasant or sweet. Someone suggested her name would be Sweetie Pie. I'm not sure about that. But someone who is sweet, and yet through the experiences in the first chapter, her name, she felt, did not reflect her attitude. But there are circumstances within this book that I think are worthy of our consideration, actually some prayers in this book that are worthy of our consideration as we think about Mother's Day, looking at a mother and a woman who became a grandmother, context of the book. And so I hope that we'll see some lessons uh, from her life. The writer of this book, I believe, would have been Samuel. Notice in the first verse of chapter one, it says, now it came about in the days when the judges governed. So this is during that time, and it's telling the story of Naomi and her family that took place during those days of judges. But the perspective of the writer, if you turn to the last chapter in the book, see the very last word of the book is David, and there's a genealogy here of David. So the perspective of the author is, yes, aware of this circumstance within the days of the judges, but in terms of his writing, he's aware of David, who was not the first king of Israel, but the second. And so David... Remember, as he was anointed by Samuel, uh, became eventually the king in Saul's place. He was anointed and then took some time before he was king of Judah and then king over all of Israel. After some years, we're not told exactly at what point, but the writer is explaining the origin, you might say, of David's family. Where did uh, David come from? And there certainly was a knowledge of this portion of his story, that there was a, a Moabitess, Ruth, who was a part of that picture. And so this is, I believe, in part an apologetic, an explanation for David's origin, and particularly this Gentile who became included within the people of God and the family of God. We can even say, based on what we know from the Old and New Testament, that she's in the line uh, by uh, marriage into uh, the nation. She's in the line of the Messiah. And so this becomes a very interesting story in light of all that, but the story is told and the end is given to connect us and help us to see that this is a, an explanation of the background behind David's family. The writer likes to tell the story by means of conversation. So although there is narrative, there's a lot of words from the characters in the story. And as you read the words, particularly the words of Naomi, the words of Ruth, the words of Boaz, the words of the people, and it wouldn't be every verse or every time someone is speaking, but there's a lot of gracious speech, a lot of gracious things that are said between 
these people. And so this is one of those books in scripture that as you look at it, there's some encouragement as to how to communicate with others. It's a story of God's grace. You can certainly say that with regard to Ruth, but it's also a story of grace when we think about Naomi. And what we're confronted with in this first chapter is multiplied afflictions for Naomi. Multiplied afflictions. And those multiplied afflictions, as they affect her life, they kind of push out what you might say are some words at the end of the chapter in particular that are show her attitude. And yet, even in the midst of those afflictions and that eventual attitude, there is prayer. There's prayer that comes out of her life. Prayer that must have been a part of her life. Prayer that was expressed. And by the end of the book, that prayer is answered in an amazing way. Naomi was a praying woman. I think you can see that from her words, even in the book. We don't know a lot about her life, but from what we see, we see that. And so I I hope that we'll be encouraged as we look at a, a woman who was a praying mother and eventually grandmother as her prayers were answered. Let's begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 13. Scripture says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may rest each in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, for go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Multiplied afflictions. As you read the story here, a famine takes place in the land. And as a result, Elimelech, who is from Bethlehem in Judah, leaves the promised land, leaves the proper place for God's people, and makes his way into the land of Moab, to the east. We don't know exactly how far in or where exactly they went, but they did go outside of the promised land. And due to famine in God's plan, God's the one who sends the rain, withholds the rain. If a famine comes upon a land, we certainly have a God in heaven who is almighty, who controls that. And this does seem to be a judgment upon the people during this time, the time of judges. There were certainly times of blessing under judges. There was also times, there were also times when the people sinned and God brought oppression and he brought famine. This seems to be one of those times where God brought famine and the result of the people needing bread, needing food was to actually leave the land and go elsewhere. And so Elimelech, and as I just observed others who 
write about the book of Ruth. This does seem to be an action that was not of faith, but just really seeking to survive. Rather than trust the Lord in Bethlehem, it was to pursue life elsewhere. I think we can probably debate about what we would do in such a circumstance, but this is what he did. And so apart from any of the things that happen in the next few verses, you have to realize this is a woman who's now leaving her home. And she's lost her home due to famine in the land. We're introduced to Elimelech and her sons, Malon and Chilion. We're told where they're from in Judah. And yes, Bethlehem in Judah is a significant place in biblical history. It's, of course, the birthplace of David and the birthplace of the Messiah. But they leave that place, that house of bread, which has no bread, and they go into the land of Moab. And if you read the law and you look at the description of what Moab was, both in its origin through Lot and his incestuous relationship with one of his daughters, Moab being a person that was the foundation of that land, of the the founder, you might say, of that land. And then throughout its history, it became opposed to the people of Israel. Not only did they not provide bread and water when Israel came out of Egypt for them, but they became Israel's enemy. And it was Balak who hired Balaam to curse Israel. Balak was the king of Moab. So this is not friendly territory, you might say. They did find a place to live there. It's obviously at a different time, but they found a place to live. And they lived there for We're not told exactly how long, but verse 3 says Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. So now she's lost her home, and now she's lost her husband, provider, her support, her shoulder to lean on, companion to confide in, the one who had led their family until this point, and now she has two sons living in a foreign land. And to add to her affliction, after some time, they took wives for themselves and lived there for 10 years, and then both of the sons died before their mother. Verse 5 says, then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman, that's Naomi, was bereft of her two children and her husband. I think the purpose there of the narrative is to draw attention to the loss lost her home, now lost others who might provide for her in the absence of her husband, both of her sons. Certainly grieving. And because now there's no children in the picture as well, there's not an expectation of someone else to come along to provide. It's just Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. And what happens? Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. And how long had she been there? Ten years. She'd actually become accustomed to this new place for a significant period of time. But the loss of her husband, the loss of her sons, and now the, the thought that there would be provision in another place. There's bread now back in the land of Israel. It says in the end of the verse, the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. We're not told how this message came to them, but news spread that God had visited his people, that he was providing food for them there. And so she leaves the place where she had come to rest in Moab, uprooted again. And you might say, well, it's Moab, so that's okay. But if you know what it's like to live in a place for a significant period of time and then to lose that place, that's not insignificant. And so she departs, verse 7. And her two daughter-in-laws, daughters-in-law, went with her. And it says they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So whatever that road is or series of roads or paths, they're making their way back. And it's in the context of that journey that we hear some of their conversation because the daughters-in-law go with her. Orpah and Ruth go with her. But she really doesn't believe she has anything for these two. 
And it's in the context, we learn a couple things about Naomi as she talks to them. But one of the things I believe we see is that in addition to losing her home and her husband and her boys and another home, she really has lost hope. She's speaking to them about their lives as apart from her because she believes she really doesn't have anything else to offer to them. And when you get in a circumstance where you're hopeless, you say things, I think it's interesting that even in the midst of this, she is gracious. She's, she's believing. Even the fact that she heard about the Lord visiting his people with bread and her acting on that is evidence that she is a believing woman. She does know the Lord. And the words that she says to her daughters-in-law indicate she knows the Lord. She knows some things about the Lord. So in the context of the loss of her hope, there's a little hope that there may be food, but in terms of any future expectation for life beyond that, she really doesn't have much. But she wants to give it to her daughters-in-law. She wants to give them some kind of expectation. They don't have to be bound to her, even though she may be hopeless. And so it's kind of a mixed picture here in terms of her heart's attitude. But I think it's a wonderful thing that as she gives her daughters-in-law some hope, she speaks about the Lord. Go, she says in verse 8, start in the beginning of verse 8, it says, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, which means it's the name Yahweh, the personal name of God. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Tells you a little bit about Ruth and Orpah and how they were handling their relationship with Naomi and even their husbands and their father-in-law, that there had been kindness, loyalty shown by these two daughters-in-law. And Naomi's prayer for them is that the Lord would deal kindly, that he would show loyalty to them because of their loyalty shown to the dead and also to Naomi. But that's a prayer. May the Lord show you loyalty because of the loyalty that you've shown. That's a prayer to the Lord. This is also a prayer in verse 9. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And that's a prayer that she makes. We don't know how our prayers sometimes are going to be answered. I'm sure she never thought how this prayer would be answered, other than she's really praying that they would find security, safety in the home of a man that they would come to know and marry. But the expectation is that that's not back in the land. That's not going back to Israel. It's actually back to their former place where they lived. They're young enough. They could find another husband, possibly have children. That's not mentioned, but in other words, her expectation is not to come back to Bethlehem with her. And then we've got some emotion that overtakes all of them as she says these words, because the words imply goodbye. And as they imply goodbye, verse 9 concludes, then she kissed them, this is goodbye, not going to see each other again, but then they all lift up their voices and weep. And just imagine the experiences that these women had had together. After Elimelech died, there would have been sorrow. After Malon died, there would have been sorrow. After Chilion died, there would have been sorrow. And now they're thinking about after having shared all of those deeply emotionally sorrowful, significant moments together, now they're thinking about leaving each other. And yeah, on come the tears. And no doubt that would add to the affliction. That would add to the pain. That would add perhaps to the hopelessness. But these two girls loved Naomi. And their response after they calmed down, verse 10, was to say, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. And they both said that. We know the story, but they both said that. So this tells us something about Orpah and her love for Naomi. 
But it's here where I think we really see the hopelessness because she doesn't believe she has anything to offer. And I, I, I think it's interesting too. There's, there's, a, there's a way that she speaks to these two that even though she's not their biological mother, she's become their mother-in-law and she addresses them as daughters. She is really taking that role on because these are the two that married her sons and she calls them daughters. There's really a love here. But her love is to not want to have them sacrifice for her sake to be with her, but actually to go and find something for themselves. And so her argument is clear. They don't really have hope with her. At least that's what Naomi says. Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? It's not going to happen. Return, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband today or tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? It's going to be too long. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? In other words, they would be putting their life on hold, even if this was a possibility. It would be an extended time. And it just doesn't make sense. And so she just says, no, my daughters. For it is harder for me than for you. Her expectation for herself and her expectation for them was different. She thought they would be better off if they just separated and went their own way and found husbands and found security and settled elsewhere. And then she says, why? And I think it's interesting that she says these words at the end of verse 13. We really don't know, based upon the circumstances, that they're not true. We might tend to think she's overdoing it. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, she says at the end of verse 13, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She thinks she's under God's judgment, and I'm just saying, while we might, be, we might tend to say, oh, Naomi, the Lord is not judging you. We don't really know that. We don't know that. And the reason I say that is because a little later on, she says some more and indicates there really was, in her own mind, she was convinced that, that the Lord was dealing with her for something. We're not told. But we do know her perspective. And I think it's just something that needs to, as we read through this book, as we study it together, something that just needs to kind of settle into our, here's, here's who Naomi is. Here's the affliction that she has been through. And if you've ever known someone who's been through multiplied afflictions, it's certainly going to affect their outlook, their attitude, their hope. I think it is a wonderful thing in the midst of all that in the first 13 verses that you still have somebody who's praying. She's still praying. And she's a praying mother. No, she doesn't have children anymore to pray for. She now has daughters to pray for, daughter-in-laws, daughters-in-law. And so this is a very unselfish thing that she's doing, very thoughtful that she would love them and pray for them and ask God to give them what she herself could not have. And just by way of application, just ask you, are you a praying person in the midst of your affliction, whatever it may be? And then more specifically, if you're a mother, are you a praying mother? You pray for your children or those that the Lord has put in your life? Are you seeking the welfare of those whom God has given to you, not just by acting, but by praying and seeking God for them? Certainly for their salvation, for their welfare. C.H. Spurgeon said, I cannot tell you how much I owe to the prayers of my good mother. And I, that's one of those kinds of statements that you can see replicated in many places where there's someone who has served the Lord in a notable way, and oftentimes they're pointing back to that woman who gave them life, who prayed for them. So the pastor, 
with the last name of Halsby, who said, see to it that you pray for your children. Then you will leave them a great legacy of answers to prayer, which will follow them all the days of their life. Then you may calmly and with good conscience depart from them, even though you may not leave them a great deal of material wealth. You might be in that mindset or that life circumstance. You don't feel like you can leave much to your children, but you can leave your prayers. And they're much more valuable. Naomi here is praying for these that had come into her care because they had married her sons, and she's asking God to give them rest and to show the loving kindness that they had shown to reward that. Those two prayers, as brief and simple as they are, are out there. They went up to the throne of God. God heard them. Now, There's a wonderful thing that takes place here and something for Naomi and Ruth and the whole story, obviously. Orpah does follow Naomi's wisdom at this moment and leaves, verse 14. But in verse 15, Ruth is hesitant. Naomi says in verse 15, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And I say Naomi knew the Lord. She didn't make always the wisest of statements. In this case, <laughs> to tell someone to go back to their gods is foolish. There is only one true God. He's the God of Israel. He's the God of heaven. He's the creator God, the only God, the redeemer. And so she's actually pointing Ruth, but really sets up the next statement. But she's pointing Ruth to go back not only to her people, but also her gods. And perhaps it was because of her feeling in verse 13, but whatever the case, that was her advice. But then we have Ruth's resolution. This is a passage that I think rightly receives much attention by preachers and has through church history because of her statements here and her commitment to following God. Look at verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And in just a few statements there, she has made a strong resolution not only to join with Naomi in companionship, but to be with Naomi through her life and to join herself to the people of God and to the Lord himself. And, lest that's not enough, she utters a curse upon herself if anything keeps her from doing that. Talk about a strong resolution. This resolution includes not only a commitment to Naomi and to the people of Israel, but ultimately to God. And as she makes this commitment to God and calls on the name of the Lord for a curse against herself, this is, I think, rightly observed as a moment of her conversion, where she turns from any thought of any gods that she might have elsewhere and commits herself to God, the Lord. And Naomi, while she had lost and lost and lost till this point in the chapter, even just lost her other daughter-in-law, Orpah, now she just gained something in an amazing way. I think if you read the story, she doesn't even fully realize it. She doesn't even recognize, although she knows that Ruth is committed, she doesn't really recognize what's happened. Now, she's had her daughters-in-law with her, and they've been her companions on this road, but now one of them leaves, the other one stays, but as she stays, she says, I'm with you till death, and I'm serving your God, and I'll be with you till death. She had lost and lost and lost, but she'd also gained something. 
And oftentimes when we're in affliction, we're not looking at the good things that God is doing. We're only looking at everything we've lost. And I think it's helpful here to remember that because even as we continue through the chapter, I don't think Naomi quite sees it. Look at verse 19. So they both went on until they had come to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned with her, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, we've been looking at her afflictions, and I take that from her statement there at the end of verse 21, that the Almighty has afflicted me. We've been looking at the afflictions. Now we see, if we didn't see it before, I think we did see a little bit of it before, but now we see her attitude about this affliction. What is her attitude? Well, it's not what the psalmist said. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In other words, we don't find her saying those positive things about the value of affliction, but affliction does have value. Read Psalm 119. Those verses I just quoted are in a section where the psalmist is saying that affliction is actually a good thing. It's a good thing. It's good for a person that they go through affliction. For a person who knows the Lord and goes through affliction, it it quickens them. It helps them to get back into the way that they know they need to be in. It draws them closer to the Lord. It does help them to pray. This isn't a message about affliction directly, at least that aspect of it, but there are benefits to affliction. But what is her attitude? Not that. Instead, when they call her by her given name, Naomi, she says, I don't want that. That means sweet. That means pleasant. And my life has been anything but that. Look at what she says as she's called Naomi. The city is stirred because of her and Ruth as they came into town. She'd been gone for 10 years, but they knew her. But her first words to them, yeah, we're back. It really wasn't anything good for her, she felt, to talk about. It had been loss. It had been the loss of her husband, the loss of her sons, the loss of her home, all these bad circumstances. And so don't call me joyful or pleasant. Don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. This is hard. This is difficult. And who's responsible? Naomi, for what she says here, we we might, again, look at it and say she's overdoing it. We can discuss that in a moment, but notice who the source of her affliction is. Look at verse 20. It says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. God is the source of my affliction. The Almighty is the source of my affliction. Is that true? Well, the Lord is in the heavens, the psalmist said, and he does whatever he pleases. Does he bring affliction into our lives? Yes. Does he do so because of our sins to help us to see the sinfulness of what we're doing? Yes. Is that always the case? Of course not. I don't think you can read the Word of God and say affliction always is due to our sins. You read through the story of Job and you see a righteous man who was fearing the Lord. He hated evil. He turned away from it, and yet God brought affliction into his life for some greater purpose. And who is more afflicted than our Savior? The Lord Jesus, who never sinned once, and yet he endured that affliction, all the affliction 
leading up to the cross and the cross itself. So affliction is not always due to my personal sin, but it could be. It could be. In the case of David, and we read through David's life, we find affliction coming into his life. Was it always due to his sin? No, but was it sometimes? Yes. And so God can use and does use affliction. And what is our attitude in affliction? Well, whatever our attitude, we need to have this as a bedrock thought that God, God has brought this about for some purpose. And I think it's helpful to remind ourselves of the psalmist's words so that we remember that affliction can be a good thing if it turns us to the Lord. Well, let's look in more detail at her words. She says, do not call me Naomi or sweet or pleasant. Call me instead Mara. You might have a note next to that. It means bitter, difficult, hard. That's been her experience. And so for a Hebrew, names are very significant. They indicate something about the identity of the person or, or, or who the person is. And so for her to change her name is to suggest, this is my life. It's bitter. It's not sweet. It's not pleasant. Notice verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And with one respect, if you think about what she went out with, she went out with Elimelech, she went out with her boys, and they all died, but she didn't come back empty. And this is where she's missing something. She doesn't recognize Ruth. Ruth, this young woman who's just professed her faith in God, who's now going to be, is already a source of companionship, but then a source of help to her, and eventually, as we see the story unfold, a source of blessing. So she's missing one thing that God has done in her life through this affliction, and it's brought Ruth, this young woman, to her side. Again, when you look at the words and verses earlier in the chapter, the hand of the Lord is against me, and these words, look at the middle of verse 21, why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Her attitude is that the Lord has dealt with her in a very hard way. Now, is what she's saying true? Do sometimes people know that they're under the discipline of the Lord? Yes. We're not told in the story of what she did other than she left the land. Was it her suggestion to Elimelech that they leave the land of promise and go into the land of Moab? She obviously doesn't have something right when she tells Orpah to go back to the land of her gods. So this is a sinner, just like the rest of us. She's not perfect. It is possible that the Lord is dealing with her and her family because of sin. He was dealing with the whole nation because of sin. In the book of Judges, there were times when God let the enemies come against Israel because they had been living in idolatry. The challenge is, we do know she knows the Lord. She's talking about the Almighty. She's talking about the Lord, but the Lord does discipline his own. Whatever the case is, whatever the cause is for her affliction, this is her attitude. And I think it's important for us to consider our attitude if we're going through affliction. We do need to remember that the Lord is in control of it. That the Lord could bring an end to the trial. If he hasn't brought an end to the trial, he must have a purpose for it in our lives, for our good. We know that he's changing us to be like Christ. We know that Sometimes it's not just through simply reading the Word of God and following the Word of God that we are changed. Sometimes the Lord brings difficult circumstances into our life to bring about that change that is necessary in our life. He chips off uh, you know, the, the rough edges, and sometimes it takes some force to do that. And why does He do that? Because He has a purpose to make us like Christ, and He is wise, and He is loving and he is almighty. I think we need to remember that he is good in what he does. He's good to do what he does. God is never not good. 
He's always good. So we can't ascribe any injustice to God. We can't ascribe any foolishness to God. He's always wise. He's always good. He has a plan, and he's doing good things through this affliction. And we, we've only read through the first chapter, but we know that God is doing some good things in Naomi's life if we read to the end. But doesn't it take grace to say, like Job said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord? That's really something Naomi could have said. But instead, she's viewing this in terms of the difficulty, the hardship, the hard things that God has brought. Well, why has God brought those things? He's never brought hard things because of injustice or a lack of wisdom or a lack of goodness or a lack of love. He's always good. He's always wise. He's always just. Now, they've come back for bread, and it's the beginning of the barley harvest. And we're not going to go through the other chapters like we went through the first one. The first one, we saw the affliction. We saw her attitude. But in chapters 2 and 3, Naomi's role, you might say, is kind of in the background, but she really is providing assistance to and advice to Ruth. Naomi has relatives there in Bethlehem. We're told here at the beginning of chapter 2, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Okay, remember, Naomi said, I went out full, I came back empty. She she didn't come back empty. She actually came back with someone who's going to go out and work and help provide food. What a blessing. So she departed, went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened. This is an interesting word in the original language. You might see in the margin where it says her chance chanced upon. It's just It just so happened that she went to this particular field. And if you're reading that with a knowledge of what Scripture teaches about God and his sovereignty, you know it didn't just happen as if some chance, whatever that might be, brought this about. No, there's a God in heaven who directs our steps. But she happens to come to that portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the family of Elimelech. Now, you could say of all the places in Israel, this is a pretty likely possibility that she would somehow come into interaction with Naomi's family, but this person? And in God's providence begins to glean in this field, and then in God's providence happens to find favor in the eyes of Boaz, who then instructs his workers to provide some for her a little bit extra, more than she would normally glean. That's what's going on in this chapter. As she starts to work and Boaz is there, and it's another time where you see Boaz's words and gracious words coming from Boaz with his workers. Let's just read a small portion there. Verse 4, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Then thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? 
Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you've comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. There's more kindness that comes, more interaction that comes, more blessing. And when she gets home, look at verse 17. She gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. What is happening is she is finding favor in, we, if we know the rest of the story, we know this is the beginnings of just the kindness that's being shown, but there's a substantial blessing that has come to them on the very first day she goes out to glean from this man who's a relative. And you know what it's like when you see someone who's thinking and they start to, they things, you know, light bulb kind of comes on. But in this case, I think Naomi plays it very well because she doesn't rush things and she's not trying to be a matchmaker. She blesses the person who provided for her, but look in verse uh 19, middle of the verse, she told her mother-in-law with whom she'd worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And then another significant statement. Again, Naomi said to her, this man is our relative or he is near to us. He is one of our closest relatives. He's one of our redeemers. That's a significant word. Because in the law, a redeemer is someone who could come and help someone who had been impoverished and as a near relative had the right to buy, purchase the land of this one who had come into some hardship and continue on to help that family, both continue their name and help the family as a whole. So Naomi, though she had been 10 years in a foreign land, she understood the law. She understood the possibilities now that exist with this man, this near relative, this redeemer, this possible redeemer. And then if I could summarize what Naomi says, she said, you know, it's a good thing you found this place. I think you should stick with this field. I think you should just kind of stay here. It's a good idea. She may have more that's going on in her head because of the circumstances and the possibilities as things play out in the next chapter, but she just says, this is a good idea. You just keep on going to that field. She even says that. Look at verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maid so that others do not fall upon you in another field. In other words, there's protection here. And so she does stays in that field, continues to glean to the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And so there's a time that passes here as she's benefiting from and providing for Naomi, taking grain after she's gleaned back home. Then, chapter three, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our kinsman, our acquaintance, this is our relative, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. And then he will tell you what you shall do. 
And she said to her, all that you say, I will do. So what's, what's Naomi's role? Well, first of all, in chapter two, it's to give her some advice and counsel. And this is for her safety that she's gleaning in this particular man's field. But there's something else in Naomi's mind and in the possibilities that this man, Boaz, not only is he going to, can he protect Ruth, but he's actually someone who could redeem Ruth, could marry Ruth. And he's older. It seems significantly older because in part of what he says in the previous chapter, when he says in verse five of chapter two, whose young woman is this? And then after Ruth follows the advice of Naomi, who has told her to go, and he finds her at his feet, and he's startled, verse 8 of chapter 3. Look at verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are a redeemer. The idea of a redeemer, again, if you go back to the law, is a relative who could help one who has come into an impoverished condition and did not have the means to care for their land. This is certainly Naomi and Ruth's situation. Elimelech is dead. Malon is dead. Chilion is dead. They don't have the means to be able to work whatever land they had but they're still connected to it because in Israel, everyone had a portion and that was their portion. And if it came to a point where a man who had a portion died, there was even a law, and that's part of the scene here in Ruth. There was a law that the brother, if he's unmarried, the brother of the man who died was to come and marry the widow. And the firstborn from that relationship was then to take over that portion for his, for, for, for his father. And, and perpetuate the name in the land. And I say for his father, it's obviously the child of this man who married the widow, but what God is doing in that law is he's giving someone an inheritance and saying, you're going to keep that inheritance. And even in special cases, there's going to be a continuation of that name. And we'd have to take some more time to look at the law. And even there's some New Testament statements about it as well, but that's what's going on here. In fact, when, when Ruth says in verse 9, I am Ruth, your maid, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative, she's actually asking for his protection. She's asking him for, to act according to the law as a redeemer who's going to both care for her, care for Naomi, and if they were to have a child, that firstborn child would then become the heir of what used to be Elimelech, or Chilion, or Malon's land. Now, I said there's a difference in age. When Ruth says what she says, the first thing that Boaz responds with is a blessing first, verse 10. Then he said, may you be blessed to the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Implies what? That he's no spring chicken. He's older. And rather than approaching someone else who might be younger in the same close relative position, she came to him. Now, obviously, for the sake of time, we can't look at all the details, but I do think it's interesting that Boaz, as soon as she asks the question, he knows there's somebody else that's in front of him. There's somebody else who could help them and has the right to help them before he has the right. And that's what he objects with. Look at verse 12. Now, it is true I'm a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. In other words, there's someone else who could take this role and be the redeemer for your family. But my point is, he knows that. So maybe he's thought about this before, right? We know the story. And here's his plan. Verse 13, remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, 
lie down until the morning. Okay, so she's asking him to care for her as a redeemer, basically to marry her and care for her and raise up a child for her husband so that that land could be inherited by that family. And he's objecting because he knows there's somebody, or he's at least saying we have to wait because there's somebody else who's closer. But he says, if he doesn't do it, I will. So he's giving her some certainty that he has a purpose too. Something's going to happen here. And then I don't know if you... Go, my daughter. And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. You see what God's doing for Naomi? He's filling her hands. She, she was empty, mostly. She didn't have anything in her hands. Does God still care for Naomi? Yes, he does. He's filled her life now with a woman who's going to care for her, honor her, treat her like a mother, go out and get food for her. But now, because of what God ordained in the wisdom of his law, he's providing now more. And this is, this is you might say, this is just food, but it's symbolic, isn't it? Symbolic in the sense that God's putting some things in her hands. God loves the widow. He loves the orphan. He loves this widow. He loves this woman who has been a caregiver for others, who's still caring for Ruth, who's caring for her by giving her advice and guidance in this situation. And you think God isn't going to respond with loving kindness back towards that? Of course he is. If I could just draw a lesson. <laughs> you think, mom, that you're not getting any return for what you're doing? You may not see it now, but there's a God in heaven who notices every diaper you change. He notices every time that you do something, get up in the middle of the night or do something for your children. He cares about that. He actually created you to live that way and act that way and love that way. It's an image of God that you do that. He's not forgotten you. He loves you. He's caring for you. In this circumstance, you can see the blessing that's coming back to Naomi as she has no doubt demonstrated love to her own children and now to Ruth. But what is Naomi's response? And hang with me. I realize we've got a little bit more to go here. Look at verse, 17, uh, verse 18. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. What's he have to settle? He has to settle whether or not this other person who has a closer right to redeem will do it. The early part of chapter 4 is how he goes to the city gate, and as he's there, he makes it a very public transaction by which he asks the other person, if you are going to redeem it, redeem it otherwise. And, and when you do, you have to take Ruth, this Moabitess, to be your wife, according to the law, and raise up a child so that that child can then inherit. That's just a summary of what takes place there. And this man, because he realizes he's going to have to marry uh, Ruth, he makes an excuse, and he says, I, I can't do that. And so Boaz says, I'm going to. Look down at verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. So Boaz is going to, the other man passed up his right. Now Boaz is going to do it. Now look at, the, look at the prayer of the people. Verse 11. 
all the people who were who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. Who's he talking? Who are they talking about? They're talking about Ruth. What did Rachel and Leah do? They bore the children who became the foundation stones, you might say, of the nation. Twelve sons of Jacob. May Ruth be that kind of a foundational figure in your home. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, that's what Bethlehem used to be called, and become famous in Bethlehem. I think if you're talking about Boaz himself, this is a blessing upon him that his name would somehow be distinguished, that he would be famous. And he is. This prayer uttered in the city gates in this day, as it came to fruit, how did Boaz become famous? Because Boaz, well, we don't, haven't read to the end of the story, but Boaz is now in a line in Judah that aims straight towards David the king. Which then, through time, ends straight toward Jesus Christ. See what's going on? There's something much bigger going on than Naomi ever realized. Moreover, verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez through uh, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So another blessing, I believe, indicating the fact that he would be somehow, or through his household, the chief over Judah, which, of course, eventually it was. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. Now, if you read that verse alone, just read that verse. Who are, who are we talking about? Is that Boaz? Or is that the child? Let's keep on reading. Because they said this to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. In other words, he's given you a redeemer. And may his name become famous in Israel. Whose name? May he also, verse 15, be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. This is the baby. This is Obed. This is a grandson that she, she never thought she'd see. And now, according to this blessing... Blessing of the Lord, praise to the Lord. This child has now come to Naomi to be a restorer, a refresher of her soul, a sustainer to her, someone to care for her like Boaz can care for Ruth. Because this child actually belongs to Naomi. This is this would be the, the son that Malon never had that now belongs to her. Firstborn child belongs to her. Look at the next verse, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed, which means servant. And here's where it gets bigger and broader. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then you're given from Perez of Judah all the way down to David indicating that the royal line, which was promised to come through Judah, came to David, but it came through this family. Naomi is a grandmother, great-grandmother, to the king, the king of Israel. Empty, yeah, at one point in her life, but full, that she may have never seen the full fruit of what God was doing in and through her life and her family. But that's the reality. And that's really the story of grace, isn't it? 
It's God's grace that takes something so poor and small like we all are and shows his grace and does something great. God is good. And of course, we can't read this story without thinking about the ultimate redeemer, which is Jesus Christ. And I hope even as we've considered this story today, there's certainly something here. We look at Naomi's life for mothers, but there's something for all of us as we think about God and his redemption, that action of Ruth to come and ask Boaz to spread his covering or his skirt over her to to care for her. There's a sense in which every single one of us, when we come to Christ, are asking that. And can he do it? Yes, he can. And he will, if you put your trust in him. He will save you, forgive you, give you eternal life. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow and we thank you for the plan that you have for each of our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that even when we go through affliction and trials, we thank you, Lord, that you have a good purpose. Thank you for this wonderful story. Thank you for your grace that did good things, even in this stark backdrop of affliction. Thank you, Lord, that you are in each of our lives working out your will and our good. And we may not find ourselves in the line of the Messiah, but if we put our trust in him, we find ourselves in relation to him with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in him. And we pray that we might give thanks to you today. Thank you, Lord, for our mothers, for those who labor for us, oftentimes unthanked, but we want to thank you today and help us to express our thanks to them. Thank you for the gift that you've given to us in this life through them. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.